sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right. All right, welcome to the program. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on. Hey to everybody in the chat rooms. Um, we are going to be digging in and chatting about a few different things here. Um, we're going to be going into our encouragement. We are going to make sure that we are talking about the Fed chair and his statements about the wealth gap stemming from stagnation and educational attainment. And uh, we're also going to be talking about the president's statement. He made a statement on the... Um, I think he was at the White House today, speaking about and taking questions about looking very carefully at Acosta's role in the Jeffrey Epstein plea deal. And there's a bunch of stuff about Jeffrey Epstein, or I, I got to pick which I'm going to use, Epstein, um, how he was connected to the president um, and how he was basically going forward with some pretty, pretty, like, it's almost like he was a spy. And I'm not sure if he was a spy. We're still investigating that. But I've been reading a lot of background stories about this and kind of feeling like I don't know everything that's going on. Um, so we'll definitely be keeping up with that. We'll touch on that today on the program. AT&T has become the latest provider or first provider, actually, to uh, block robocalls. And Nancy Pelosi's isolation gambit has begun to work on the squad. We'll talk about that. And we are also going to be digging into the title of today's show. If they won't listen to your words, convince them with your winning. Uh, but first, I wanted to kind of give a shout out to Noah, who is our erstwhile producer on the show since we launched digital. Um, and Noah, I wanted to kind of recap earlier today. I was on a program that you were hosting um, on KNOX and we were discussing Not My Ariel. And I wanted to get your take on that on the record here on today's show. Yeah, you bet. So... You and I had, like, we started off not exactly agreeing, but we've kind of, I guess we're in the same ballpark now. What is your take on this whole thing? People are upset. Um, Disney's making a live action version of The Little Mermaid, and they're going to do it with um, a, a black actress. She's black, and she doesn't look anything like Ariel, um, the original cartoon character. So what was your take on it? It was interesting. I, I, so you have more of a permanent tan than I do, but I have somewhat of a permanent tan, as you, as, you know, to, to use your phraseology. And and where I wound up with is when I first saw that hashtag, not my Ariel, going all over the internet, I thought to myself, is that is that really a thing? People actually care what the color of the Little Mermaid skin is? And I started to look. The problem was, Stacy, the only people I could find were people that were progressive leftists mad about the fact that people were upset about the fact that there was a black mermaid. But I couldn't find anybody on the right that was upset about it. So I started asking people, hey, do you care? Do you care? And, and everybody gave, to include you, uh, well, uh, well, up to you, gave me the same answer, which was, no, I couldn't care less. And then when, when you and I started talking off the air, you said, well, you know, why why not just create a new character? Why did they have to take over an existing character? And 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 that kind of struck a chord with me and I started to say, well, there is something to that because in the past Disney has had other diverse minority princesses, nobody's ever had a problem with it. Now all of a sudden it's an issue. Why is that? Well, it's because is I think it's because people are questioning if this is really a decision about the little mermaid or if it's just virtue signaling on Disney's part. And it's mm -hmm. hard to tell in 2019. It is. It's super hard to tell. And I, and I, I want to make the point that um, I guess it's just been so weird for me now because I've, I've kind of felt like a bunch of Americans aren't going to care no matter what. They saw the original Little Mermaid and their kids are bigger and they're never going to go see the Little Mermaid again. And I don't have any kids at this house who right now are currently interested in going and seeing the new movie. I know they're aware of it because they're on social media and they watch a lot of their own programming like they get all of their news and information and programming from programs that are aired on YouTube and etc and so they have their favorite hosts and they keep up with things but they haven't expressed a desire to go see the movie now I, I mentioned earlier today um, when we were talking on radio earlier I said you know because of your recommendation we actually have some people at this house right now who are interested in going and seeing Aladdin because we thought we saw the original Aladdin. We loved it. It was a cartoon live action. And we like Will Smith, but we weren't going to go see it. But you said it was really well done. So what, what did you love about that film? So let's start with the fact that the genie was not white, right? The genie was blue. 
and so skin color to me never really played in it never played a role right and that never even really crossed my mind because it's a blue genie and and will smith they actually have him playing a blue genie but here's what was interesting stacy as they got into the character of the genie robin williams obviously is the kind of actor that you really can't uh you really can't compete with Right. I mean, he's the kind of guy that he has a he has a character and he has a, a way about him and there's nobody that can be Robin Williams except for Robin Williams. And so I think it was a real challenge for both Disney and Will Smith to come against that and and that perfect performance. And it was just shy of perfect uh, on, on Robin Williams's part. And what they did was they were very creative in the way that they kind of twisted it to kind of give it a little bit more Will Smith uh uh, you know, um, character and and a little less Robin William character, and they they brought it together in a really interesting way, right? So, for example, one of the songs that 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 uh, that they do, where Robin Williams is tra- uh, traditionally very you know boisterous and and outlandish, uh, they turn it into more of a, a more of a rap almost. It's kind of hard to explain, but. It, it, that really fits Will Smith's character, and he does an absolutely fantastic job. And so, as I kind of watch that, and keeping the storyline absolutely flawless throughout, except for like one or two little s- s- twists, which actually made it more believable. The char- the actors and actresses who they got to play Jasmine and Aladdin actually felt like the real, you know, implementation of Jasmine and Aladdin. Like that's how you feel those characters coming to life. I just don't have enough positive things to say about that movie. And this is coming from somebody who never thought the original movie could be topped. I, I still don't. It's just it, it is if you're going to do a live action movie of it, they couldn't have done a better job. So for me, I was really I, I, I so now I want to go and see that film. But to circle back around to Ariel and I just I unclick one of those boxes because people are saying that they can't hear me. People on yep. Facebook have no sound for for me. Mm-hmm. Um my mic is engaged. I'm, yeah, I'm you're sure. you're fine. I'll I'll figure it out. Okay. So anyway, I'm, so what I'm what I'm interested in is if we can just have people who just can judge it on its own merits and maybe not have everything be so okay. It's on now. Um, maybe not have everything be so kind of focused on whether or not something is a racial issue. Um, I think the conversation that that we've been having about not my Ariel about Aladdin because there was some backlash. I even saw I follow Will Smith on Instagram um, where he's much more like it's about his family that it's some some about his work, but mostly it's about his family. And he puts really funny stuff up there. And what, I, what I've noticed about that is that there's this huge thing that goes on with um, with people making something about race and not so that the discussion can't be real. So you end up with a discussion that is truncated because it's only about people's whether whether they believe they're a racist or where they're op- openly have animus towards this group or that group and they want to kind of own it or if they don't have any of that going on and they're just kind of saying I just don't like this issue right like this issue uh, you know maybe they don't want Ariel or they or they think Ariel can be anyone because she's mm-hmm. a mermaid because Disney's point has been publicly they've said Ariel was a mermaid a mermaid is a fictional character so any person could p- play her in the live action version of this film I think it's a good point for them to make, but a lot of people don't trust what they're saying because they're worried about, as you said, virtue signaling and things like that. So I don't know. I'm, I am more interested in um, like if we could just have a discussion that was really centered around do, do people want to see more stories that that's kind of my, I come from a place where I feel like they're not making enough new stories. They're not combing the ground and looking online and going to fan fiction sites and looking for people who write interesting stories to find those authors to bring new stories to life so we can have instead of having every story we've ever already had remade with a black person or an Asian person or or whatever why not have new stories that's exactly it yeah if you want a fresh start Make a fresh start. Don't try to recreate something that people already have a pre- preconceived expectations for. You're exactly right. So that was a part of the the discussion that we had today on KNOX. And I thought uh, I wanted to also give you a shout out because you are a fantastic radio personality when you're filling in and doing those shows. I've heard you on your own program, Ask Noah Show. Mm-hmm. I've heard you on that. And when you're talking tech, obviously, you're an expert and all that. So you 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 own that. But today on regular radio, it was conservative political talk. You interviewed a senator, um, Senator Kramer. Mm-hmm. Was yep, it? Kevin yes. Kramer. Yep. 
Senator Kevin Kramer was your guest uh, right before I came on, and I heard that whole interview. You also did top of the hour weather, which is not that's not easy. You have to actually know how to do that. So um, I wanted to give you some kudos. It was I thought it was a great show. I, I got to listen to just that one hour, um, and it was it was interesting to listen to. It was fast paced, which is you know kind of key. And so yeah, congrats to you for I, doing awesome radio. I appreciate that. I want to be Stacey Washington when I grow up. So <laughs> well, um, yeah, I want to have Noah Chalaya tech chops when I grow <laughs> up. <laughs> How old will I be when I get there? Uh, probably never, but. Um, okay, well, I wanted to cover that and kind of touch on that because it, it's it's actually fun to get to talk to a producer. I wasn't able to because of the way things were set up in the studio when I was at my last working job for radio. I couldn't talk to the producer, but I can talk to you. So I thought we would have that chat here on air. It was it was actually, I thought, a fun chat earlier today. It's even more fun now because um, I hope that some people who are watching or listening on the podcast that they will consider going to see Aladdin, the live action one, and then um, be open to the possibility that the Ariel movie could be the next Little Mermaid live action. It could actually be well done. We don't know. We we don't know if it's going to be well done. They just have announced that she's going to do it. So we'll see how it turns out. Um, Okay, so I want to pivot over to our encouragement. And I have something good for you guys today. I'm I mean, I hope it's good every day, but today I think this one's one of those ones where I'm going to say the word and then you might have a fight or flight response because it's about forgiveness. Okay, there I said it. Our encouragement for today is Colossians 3.13, and I'm using the New Living Translation. It says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now, I want to tell you something. This is something I've had a problem with in the past, and I would always say that, but what I've learned recently and over time, because it's, it's a journey, is that forgiveness is a heart matter. And when I call it hard, difficult, or impossible, I actually hamper my own success in this area. And I have to be successful in this area because it's a matter of obedience and also because God calls us to forgive because he forgives us. And if we don't forgive people who offend us, he won't forgive us. That's in the Bible. Scary, right? So it's not hard, difficult, or impossible for us. We have to change the way we think about it. God also says that it's not hard, impossible, or difficult for us because it's not our task alone. We're called to choose to forgive. We look at it as something that we're doing in our own strength, but the reality of the situation is it's not our job to do the actual forgiving, like the hard work of it. It's our job to choose to forgive and then See what God will do. And God will actually come in and enable you to forgive if you choose to forgive. So it's a it's a hand in hand, arm in arm. You can't do it without God, right? So God is ready and willing to do this for us, but we have to make the decision to follow him and obey him. We have to say, instead of saying, forgiving is hard, forgiving is difficult, look what she did to me, look what he did to me, they don't deserve to be forgiven, we say, I don't want to forgive that person, but I choose to forgive them because I want to obey you, Lord. Can you help me get this done? And then that's when he steps in. He makes it possible for us to forgive outside of our own strength because let's face it, we don't have any, right? So I want to take it one step forward. And um, that is because we might have some latency on Facebook. So I hope that if you're experiencing latency, you can go to StaceyOnTheRight.com. Um, if, if let's say there's something, let's say there's someone you're forgiving them, but you're still connected on social media or something like that. Um, in maybe you're connected in a way that you want to kind of let it go and, and you can't because it, as you're walking it out, that, per, that, that social media connection is, is a hindrance to you. Cut it off, cut it, just sever the social media connection. I know some people get really offended when they get unfriended on Facebook and stuff like that, but that's not really your concern. Your concern is that you want to be able to walk forward in forgiveness and sometimes leaving that channel open can prevent you from doing that. So look, this isn't about shutting people down on Facebook. I don't want you to get confused there, but I'm using that as an example of how sometimes you need to step out and away and just 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 to get yourself in a place where you can hear from the Lord and know that I'm doing, I know I'm doing the right thing. I'm obeying. I'm obedient. I want to be obedient and shut it. And maybe it's not unfriending. Maybe it's one of the, one of those ones where you hide it for a while. Cause you know, Facebook will let you do that on Twitter. It's so easy. Just unfollow. And then you can always follow later if you want to. Um, and if it's, 
a kind of a personal interaction, you can limit those too. It doesn't mean you're cutting the person off and it doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It means you're protecting yourself so that you can walk forward in obedience. It's doable and God calls us to do it. Therefore, we must do it. And that's why I wanted to encourage you in this area today. Let us all be obedient in the area of forgiveness. We'll be back with more right after these messages. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood? Or an earthquake is destroying buildings? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Jill, why didn't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey, everybody. Rachel Ray here. Nothing brings a bigger smile to my face than cooking up a big meal for the whole family and lots of friends. But there's not enough room at my table for the 17 million kids in our country who struggle with hunger. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks collects surplus food to give hope to hungry kids. But they can't do it without your help. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. It's important for you to talk to someone about it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. What are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. It's been a long time since we've had an adventure in the forest. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. You're right. I should get out. Yeah, the forest is not that far away. Hey, Mom! Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. If you enjoy the program, consider supporting us and becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash Stacy on the Right. Or you can uh, go over to PayPal slash it's paypal.com slash Stacy on the right and you can give there or you can mail your support to us at our mailing address, which you can find on our Facebook page. Uh, and so I'm really excited about our next bit of information that we're going to go over. And I promised you we were going to talk about Greg Abbott and um, the the whole issue of Austin, Texas becoming it, it's like it's inching towards. Los Angeles, San Francisco status. And so he's, Greg Abbott is the governor of the great state of Texas, and he has decided that he is going to use the laws and power that is given to him as the governor to prevent them from bringing that kind of mayhem into the state of Texas. And what did I tell you? Like, if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, I've told you years and years ago and, and recently that when liberals get critical mass in any location, what they do is they then utilize that power 
at the ballot box and then they start to control certain areas and then they start to usher in things like huge amounts of homelessness. They start to allow the homeless people to camp out on the sidewalks. They start to allow the homeless people to commit crimes and not prosecute them. They tie the hands of the police. And if you're a liberal, God bless you. And thank you so much for listening to the show. But don't try to act like this isn't true. Don't try to act like what I'm saying isn't the the fact. Liberals run San Francisco and it's becoming a pit. Same thing with Los Angeles. And Austin wants to do the same thing there. So you notice the shocking amounts of homeless people camped out in the streets in those cities in California. But Austin has never been that way until now. So Austin's mayor, his name is Steve Adler, has made it legal for homeless people to set up tents on city streets as long as their tent leaves a pathway for people to walk. Yes. (laughs) So instead of saying, we need to do something about our homeless problem, he's like, yeah, you guys just get tents, you know, just camp out wherever you like. That And that's the kind of dereliction of duty that you get when you elect liberals. I'm allowed to say whatever I want because it's my show. Uh, So... In an interview, Adler said to media that he doesn't think that this will cause problems like it does in Los Angeles or San Francisco, but Austin residents have raised concerns, especially women, about their safety. So Austin, Texas moves to abolish city ordinances that forbid camping on city streets. And this is a Cali conservative. She's tweeting out, don't let Texas make the same mistakes California made. Every area that has removed bans against camping on city streets has been flooded with waves of homeless people. I beg you all to oppose this. Now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has swooped in. He says back in June, he warned Austin, Texas, if you go through with this, I'll be forced to bring the power of Texas down on your city. Quote from him, if Austin or any other Texas city permits camping on city streets, it will be yet another local ordinance the state of Texas will override. At some point, cities must start putting public safety and common sense first. I love it. Um, so fast forward to July, the, the ordinance was passed and is already making major problems for people who want to walk the streets of Austin. Now, Abbott isn't happy, and he took to Twitter once again to show people what kinds of dangers these policies bring on. He, here he is tweeting. He says, look at this insanity caused by Austin's reckless homeless policy. All state-imposed solutions are on the table, including eliminating local sovereign immunity for damages and injuries like this caused by a city's homeless policy. He says the horror stories are piling up. Now, one of the things that um, Mayor Adler has alleged is that he's trying to address homelessness and that Governor Abbott is lying and scaring people. Um, I think it's really sad that the mayor of Austin seems more concerned about keeping homeless people on the streets there than he does about the safety of residents and taxpayers who uh, they deserve protection. The issue needs to be addressed. Don't I'm not I'm not trying to paper over the fact that they have a homeless problem. But what's the root of that? Why do they have an exploding homeless problem that they didn't have when Republicans were in charge? Probably rent control, probably environmentalism run amok where you can't make new housing there. You can't have new apartments, increases in the cost of living there through gentrification because of you know, they, they have these little special rules and ordinances that they enact in cities when liberals take over and then they're shocked when no one can afford to live there and then people become homeless. So a lot of people who are residents of Austin tweeted out images. I mean, really disgusting images. What about this? This is what you wanted more of. Also, South Austin. And that's from a lady who runs a, bu- a business there called Ann's Kitchen. And she's tweeting out an image of it's it's basically a tarp, a bunch of garbage just piled up underneath a bridge. Um, Also, South Austin is what she says. Um, So, you know, again, there's no reason why they shouldn't address the issues that are going on with the homeless people there. There's also no reason why they should enact policies that would make it possible for more people to be harmed by what they're doing. And there's just image after image after image uh, of people and the resulting kind of mayhem that's caused by just unfettered homelessness and people not uh, being responsible in in government leadership there. Um, So now I want to get over to, I was talking a little bit about um, the title of the show, If They Won't Listen to Your Words, Convince Them With Your Winning. So this is a quote from Serena Williams, and she was interviewed for a, a kind of a lengthy piece 
uh, by an author. She's a she's actually a columnist, and they were talking about um, this. You know, last year she lost the Grand Slam to this young up and coming tennis player, a, a really young tennis player, and. Serena Williams also had some, there were some calls that she disagreed with by the referee. There were, there was just a bunch of stuff going on in that game and she lost her temper. And then she was angry because she said, when men in tennis lose their temper, they're passionate and they're powerful. When women lose their tempers, they're aggressive and they're threatening and they're unprofessional. And she was really railing against the mischaracterization of her actions that day. But she also said that in the moment when she was standing up for herself, she also didn't take into consideration that this was the Grand Slam win win of this young uh, tennis player and that she almost felt as if she'd robbed her. And uh, so, you know, she sent an apology to the player that she she was playing against. I'm going to get her name for you here real quick. Um, And they... The girl responded back and said, never stop advocating. You know, you you made room in this space for so many other people. Um, and she even wrote a first person essay in the August issue of Harper's Bazaar, which will be on newsstands July 23rd, talking about pushing back against injustice, trying to change the world for her daughter and the controversial U.S. Open match last year against the young tennis player. Her name is Naomi Osaka. So. She said, in the end, her opponent simply played better than she did that day and ended up winning her first Grand Slam title, and she couldn't have been happier for her. And she says the debacle around the calls from the the ref and all of that ruined something that should have been amazing and historic. The game was taken away from her, she feels, but it was also a defining triumphant moment was taken from another player. And she says her heart, she was heartbroken over it. But then she goes on. And she talks about what you do when you lose. And I thought this was really, really great because she is an epic athlete. Her accomplishments are, you know, she's historic. Um, She's you could even call her incomparable. The amount of winning she's done in the sport of tennis is nearly unrivaled. And so she says, I felt defeated and disrespected by a sport that I love one that I had dedicated my life to and that my family truly changed, not because we were welcome, but because we wouldn't stop winning. And so that's where that it resonated with me. And so it's, it's all of us who are in this. And I I told, I've been teasing this all week. We are going to have a couple of segments on what to do when you're told to go away. I haven't really decided. I have a couple of different titles in mind for this, but I'm going to kind of update you on where I am right now because you've been you've been sticking with me through this whole, hey, your contract's terminated, um, you know, just out of the blue, all of a sudden, I'm out of a job. And this is the radio industry, so I'm not unique or special in that it happened to me, but it is different for me because I literally thought going into Christian radio that it would be different, schedule changes would be done differently, that it couldn't happen to me the way it happened in secular radio and commercial radio, and I was wrong about that. So obviously, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll say I'm wrong, and I'll move on. But there's also something to be said for what do you do next? And this is this is a question that people are answering all over this country right now. And if there's anyone out there who can be encouraged by my experience and what is happening with me, then I want to make sure that I make that encouragement available by updating on, on exactly what's happening. And I think it's been, obviously, it's not easy. And obviously, it's not something that I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's have a contract terminated every, you know, let's do this over and over again. I hope to never go through it again. But the chances are, then I might because I'm in radio unless I decide to leave radio and then I would not have to worry about schedule changes because that happens in radio a lot. But this resonated with me because she said she wasn't welcomed in the tennis space, but she made room for herself by continuing to win. So she had a certain level of talent that she nurtured, but it was hard work and perseverance that kept her there. She could not win if she didn't practice. And it couldn't be that practice was her second or third thing. It had to be her primary thing, her main job, because everyone she was competing against, it was their main job. And they also had talent. And they were also bringing expertise to the space. So her dedication and fervor for winning had to come from inside herself. And she couldn't let it go. She couldn't let it waver. She couldn't say, 
uh, you know, not today. And so she goes on in, in, you know, the, the discussion. Rarely are the places and the minds that need changing going to greet that change with open arms. Rarely is that change going to be universally embraced. And she's speaking directly to, uh, you know, breaking into the tennis space. Um, she also says, if they won't listen to your words, convince them with your winning. So if whether you're a trailblazer or not, whether you're the first in your area or not, if you're not willing to give up, eventually you will hit your goal, you will hit your target, you will win. And that to me is worth its weight in gold. They're only words, but if you imagine the impact that it could make, if you have a kid who's struggling with something, you say to them, it's not your words that matter. It's not whether or not people are listening to you that matters. It's not whether or not someone called you up and said your contract's terminated that matters. What matters is that you have to keep working so eventually you can win. And so if you're listening to the show right now, which obviously you are if you can hear my voice, um, and that's a crack for earlier when we had no sound coming from me, I'm telling you that you can still win. It may not feel like that right now. It looks daunting. I'm looking at replacing the income that I used to get from American Family Radio with income from other sources, namely sponsors and uh, you know supporters of the show on Patreon and direct contributions and other work that I can do outside of my radio show. And it's daunting. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. But I can't replace that income if I give up, if I don't keep working, if I don't put myself out there and continue to really... It's, it's about what I feel like I'm supposed to do here. And if there's a difference that can be made and if there's something that can be said, a message that can be put out there that will glorify God and also help other people, then I'm going to keep doing it. And so, again, the quote from her is, if they won't listen to your words, convince them with your winning. Not because we were welcome, but because we wouldn't stop winning. So winning doesn't always look the same as it did for Serena Williams over the the course of her career, she would literally win titles because she would beat her opponent. For us, winning might just look like not giving up and continuing to go forward. And for me, it's do a show every day and fit it into my schedule and still do the other things that I'm called to do. Wife, mom, you know, I have other stuff that I do besides the radio. Um, Winning for someone else might look like, you know, maybe the thing that you started the work that you're doing in the community, they, you've been told you can't do that anymore. You have to go away. They don't want you there anymore. So you go do something else. You don't go home and say, well, I'm done. You go find something else and you do that. Maybe it's that you got the same kind of conversation I had from my employer about my, um, about my work. You don't work here anymore. So you're going to find another job and you're going to work somewhere else. And you are going to be blessed and it is going to be better than the old job. And that's what you have to keep before you because otherwise, what? why is it worth it to keep on going and doing things if you don't think that the future is going to be brighter and better than what's behind you? So when you hear the kind of little voice, it's something that just pops in when you're cooking or cleaning or you're just kind of doing something that doesn't require all of your mental space and you're hearing, yeah, there's there's nothing ahead for you. That's it. You're done. You just push back on that and say... Actually, I'm not. Not done. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep doing everything I can to put forward my effort, to put forward the best of what I can do. And eventually, this too shall pass. So that was, I thought, so fantastic. It's uh, it's an op-ed over at the Chicago Tribune, which I kind of felt like, do I want to link to the Chicago Tribune? I mean, come on, let's keep it real. The lefties over there. Um, but Um, I will add it to the show's episode link. So if you want to click through and read it, you can. But I gave you the gist of it. Um, And then, you know, obviously, there's more than one kind of winning. So keep that in mind and don't give up. All right. I want to also talk about, um, because there were a couple different things. I want to talk about, well, there's more than a couple things. I think I might have more more things to talk about than the actual show will permit. We're going to get to Nancy Pelosi. I want to get to this story really quickly 
this girl in Jacksonville took a tongue depressor out of, they were waiting in the doctor's office to see her primary care physician. They were waiting for a long time. The mom got mad and started playing around with her hand, her dirty old nasty unsanitized hand in the tongue depressor jar. The daughter picked one out, licked it and put it back in. The mom filmed the whole thing and put it on her Snapchat. Someone else who was her Snapchat friend actually took a video of it. She actually watched it on Snapchat before it disappeared and had her friend record it and now they're getting death threats and they're all shocked that people are upset with them. The point here is we got a moral deficiency in this country if people think that's something worthy of putting up online and it's somebody's mom. All right, we'll have more for you when we get back. Stay right there. I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. What if I could tell you that a full-blown wildfire was going to occur tomorrow right where you live? Tell you exactly which neighborhoods it would engulf and how fast it would do it. The first thing you would do is talk with your loved ones and make a plan today. It's true. I can't tell you a wildfire will strike tomorrow. But shouldn't you make a plan anyway? Go to ready.gov slash communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. My name is Hunter Hayes. I know myself and I know my buzzed warning signs. One shot is about knowing my limits or not necessarily knowing my limits. I start with one shot to have a good time. One of the signs that I'm starting to feel a little buzz is when I start solving not only my own problems, but the entire world's problems. When I know I'm going out, I know I'm going to start with calling for a ride. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. When might you be buzzed? When you suddenly love everything. You guys, I love this song. I love these nachos. I love our kickball league. I love this guy. What's your name? You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzzed warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I love your car. Is this real leather? Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey there. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Also, hit the subscribe button at StacyOnTheRight.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StacyOnTheRight. Uh, welcome back to the program. We have some audio for you. I first want to listen to uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve. He's talking here about the wealth gap. And what's annoying about the wealth gap conversation, if you watch CNN or MSNBC, is that they always frame it as something that's the fault of people who've made it. Um, And so I don't know if you're, uh, I'm hearing that we have a little bit of trouble with audio. So definitely we are aware. Um, Okay. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that I think is super important about the, um, the discussion on the, the wealth gap is that there is 
this pernicious quality. It's an envious type of a spirit that comes out of people where they literally think that um, they want just nobody else can be successful if they're not. Not realizing that most successful people, very few Americans have inherited wealth. A very small percentage of Americans who are wealthy have inherited that. Most Americans are like Jeff Bezos, where they ran a business for 20 years in relative obscurity. And then one day they woke up and they're like, whoa, this is actually pretty successful. And they start expanding. And then all of a sudden we know about them. And we assume that their success started, well, from day one. And that what we're seeing, um, the the... The, the the success that they have was kind of an appointment that they just walked into as opposed to something that they built over time. And Jeff Bezos is just one example of a person who he just had an idea. He started it in his garage and now he's one of the richest people on the planet. Um, oh, okay. So did anybody hear any of that stuff that I just said? Okay. So with the, with the, um, and sorry guys, <laughs> I'm talking to Noah in my ear. <laughs> so, um, so with, with, with all of that, with, with the most amazing things that we're going through in, in our country. And I, and when I say amazing things, like to me, it's kind of amazing that Steak and Shake had to close 44 of their stores in the Metro St. Louis area. Now, why, why do I think that's amazing? Because I noticed the poor service. My family noticed the poor service because with teenagers, Steak and Shake is a really popular place to go. Uh, if you want burgers and stuff, burgers, fries, milkshakes, after basketball games, sometimes the parents and the kids, we would all pile into the Steak and Shake and then we would leave because, you know, adults, I like to be I like to be at home near my bed for 11. Really, 10 is my cutoff, but I'll say 11 just so I can be somewhat cool, still cool to you. If it is after 10 and I am still out, I will start to exhibit signs. You know how babies get tired and they start they start cranking up. My mom calls it tuning up. They they start checking out their vocals to see if their vocals are still full and 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 fully operational battle stations. I don't start whining, but I start to get less like I'm I'm not as much fun to be around. And so what we would do is my husband and I <laughs> we're we're kind of we know. We would go after the game. We would eat. And then when people start looking around like I don't have anything else to talk about. My husband and I would just kind of look at each other. And we have the look. We, we've been married a while. We have the look and we just nod. We pay for our check or gra- gather up our receipt, go pay at the front and we're out. And the kids will drive themselves home because, they, you know, they would have the, the oldest. She would have her car. And so that's our experience with Steak and Shake here in the local area. It didn't nev- it never occurred to me that Steak and Shake had one uh, a few, just like maybe 10 of their stores were individually owned as franchises and the rest were all owned by Steak and Shake. So the management at those stores was horrendous. And we start to notice the quality of service going downhill. So we stopped going after games. We actually would go um, at some other point, right? We, we would just, we would go somewhere else. Um, but then all of a sudden they made this announcement that they were closing the stores and that they're looking for people to come in kind of under the Chick-fil-A model. If you have $10,000, you can own a Steak and Shake. You literally can be a franchisee, just 10 grand. That's all. And that's a really low threshold. Most franchises charge much more. Uh, so when I, when I say that, I just want you to kind of think about this is anytime you do something like that, like if you're a family here in St. Louis and you see this as an opportunity and you get together with your extended family and you say, I want to change the trajectory of our entire family and we're going to do it by owning steak and shakes. And we're going to start with one store and our first employees are going to be everybody in this room. And from there, we'll branch out and start hiring people and training them on how to do the best customer service ever. And if we can get that done with one store, we'll be able to replicate that. And in 15 years, everyone in this family will have net worth and true wealth through ownership, part ownership in these steak and shakes. Who's with me? You know, you gather your whole extended family up. If you're from St. Louis, maybe you have 15 people there. Between the 15 people, you can come up with $10,000 if you don't already have it yourself. Hopefully you have it yourself. And then you say everyone who contributes to this, whether it's 500 bucks, 100 bucks or 1,000, we're all part owners in the Steak and Shake. We're going to open this up. We're going to clean it up. We're going to run it. And it's going to be our new way of, of taking part in the American dream. That happens around this country every day. Every minute of every day, you have people who you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, this thing that I've been doing for my friends for free, that's actually a business. I should be charging $49 a pop for those. And 10 years later, you see her on the Today Show. That's how wealth attainment happens, okay? So here's the Fed chair talking about the wealth gap. 
He says it stems from stagnation in educational attainment. Don't get me started. We only have a few minutes left in the show. It's number one. It comes down to um, the education system needs to produce people who, who can take advantage of advancing technology and globalization. And you, what you've seen is a stagnation in educational attainment in the United States relative to other countries beginning about 40 years ago. And that has been, I think, the an underlying um, force that's driving this, uh, this phenomenon. I guess my, uh, my underlying model of the problem is that um, there is no shortage in the world of, of, um, of good jobs. We just, we just have to produce um, qualified people, qualified workers who can, can live at, at the standard of a, of a wealthy country and do the work they can do. And that means better education. It's easy to say. It's very hard to do. But uh, we, we need workers who can compete with the other advanced economies for, for the good jobs. For the, it's, it's, it's manufacturing jobs. It's a lot of service economy jobs. And, um, uh, you know, it's not easy to do. Fixing the educational system and improving it is a very challenging thing. I've spent no small amount of time on that earlier in my life. But um, I think that's ultimately that is it. At the end of the day, the country is its educational system. And the people who you know, the people who are in the country, they're a product of that system, and we need to we need to get ours producing um, people who can compete in the global economy, and uh, and that's I think that's at the bottom of the pile. That's the important driver. So he is saying something that's so important here, but I just I have to like put a pin in what he said and just come at this from the perspective of you know wife, mom, you know erstwhile. Um, you know, I, I used to be a really huge complainer and I'm not so much anymore, but I, I'm, I can have that little spirit creep up on me and get, and I can get into it. And usually what I find is when I get to complaining, it's because I feel out of control. And sometimes my feeling of being out of control is because I haven't sat back and examined the situation and said, well, what do I actually own in this? And then start working on what I own. And I, I want you to be just crystal clear on this because sometimes Sometimes we deceive ourselves. We make ourselves think, well, you know what? I can blame that person over there. That person does have too much. They do. They didn't come by that the way that, you know, they don't deserve it. The fact is a lot of what we see in the wealth gap can be traced back to broken families. So if you are a single parent, I am not criticizing you. I am not blaming you for your spouse that left you or a spouse that passed away or someone who they were supposed to be there for you and they're not there anymore. They've walked away. But I'm talking about this prevalence that we have in our society right now where people literally think, you know what, I can just, I can, I can have a baby on my own. Call it the Murphy Brown syndrome. The breakdown of the American family is the reason why we see such huge wealth gaps. When we had more intact two-parent households, we had less of this it's malaise. It's terrible. It's awful. It's really just, it's depressing and it's hurting kids and it's destroying our economic prospects. So it's that. It's also, you know, people, people don't want to take responsibility. If your child plays more basketball, the more time spending basketball than they spend studying during the week, if your kid is allowed to watch TV during the week, I know it sounds radical, but it works. Turning the TV off during the week, during the school year, is one of the ways that our kids were able to move from being just, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're doing okay in school to really being advanced in the areas where they had natural gifts and being proficient in areas where some of their classmates were struggling. But what we knew is, like clockworks, we could hear the basketball bouncing. And what for when at our old house where we used to live, one of our neighbors, their their kid used to play basketball every night, three or four hours a night. It would the sun would go down, and he would still be out there playing basketball. Meanwhile, our kids had a set, and and this is not because our kids are perfect. My kids have struggles; they are not perfect. But if there's one thing I know, they knew they had a routine. You get off the bus, or mommy picks you up. We get home. You have snack. You have about 20 minutes to kind of blow off some steam. You can go outside and swing on a little swing set or whatever you want to do, play with the dog. And then you have to sit down and you have to do your homework. And if you come home and I look in your backpack and there's no homework in your homework folder, then we'll just do some exercises, some math drills or, and then every night you had 20 minutes of quiet reading. Why? Because I found that they felt comforted by knowing what their routine was. And then when they got that done, there was no asking, can I go play or can I? No, you're done with all your stuff. Go do whatever you want to do. 
dump the Legos out, have as much, you know, get your little paint pots out, paint on the coffee table, on your, you know, draw whatever you want to do, dragons, fairies, Lego figures, whatever. You are free to do whatever you want once you have satisfied that your homework is done and you have done your, you know, exercises for math or for whatever area we were working on and you've read for 20 minutes. This all took about an hour in grammar school, but it prepared them for the rigors of middle school where they would have two or three hours of homework a night. And in high school, our oldest would have five or six hours of homework a night because she was going to a classical education facility. And it was just, it was so rigorous. It was crazy. She took Latin for four years. She took Greek for two years. And our son and the younger daughter were there too, but she was obviously the oldest. She was at the the higher level of what was going on, the leading edge of the curve, if you will. And she was not like, I would come in and say, are you still doing homework? Maybe, maybe you know, maybe you should leave some of that for someone. She's like, mom, I got to finish these things. I'm don't, don't, I'm finishing this up. So it had to move from me driving it to her driving it, from me driving it to our son driving it and so on and so forth. This doesn't happen if you just kind of leave it to chance. And so it, it also doesn't happen if you're the mom and the dad, or if you're the dad and the mom, it is harder to get that accomplished. It can be done. I have single parents and I know who are amazing parents and their kids are overachievers. But that is not the norm. It is actually so much easier to have someone that you can bounce ideas off of or worse comes to worse when the kids are like, I don't feel like doing so-and-so. And you know, well, when your dad gets home, I'm just going to tell him you said you don't feel like doing so-and-so. <laughs> the little eyebrows go up like, uh-oh. Well, I don't want to be looking at him. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. The other thing that happened with us cutting the TV off was they really would find something else to do. They would play with each other. They would play with a friend. And when they started doing sports, there was no hesitancy like, well, I don't want to miss my shows. They, they didn't know what was on during the week. And at the time, we were cable subscribers and we had a DVR. So we would DVR their shows and they would watch them on the weekend. But the point is, TV is not important. Kids, kids should not be tied to programs that they're watching so that they won't go do something else that's beneficial to them. And all of this comes from, again, I, my husband and I prayed over these kids. We prayed over the stuff we did with them. And we just tried our best. That's all we did. It wasn't perfect. I made mistakes. There's still stuff that I just think about sometimes. I'm like, man, why did I do it that way? Or, wow, why didn't I think to do it another way? You know, it, 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 you're always going to have those when you're talking about child rearing. But you will not have regrets if you decide you're going to dedicate what you're doing with those kids to God and let him be the architect, the beginning, the end, and everything in between that you will commit your work to him and then let him bless it and grow it and make it flourish with your kids. Because as much as I hated to say it for the very first time I ever said it, the truth is, as much as I call those kids mine, and I had them, I they, they started out in my tummy, which I like to point out to them, and they get so annoyed with me when I do that, but it's one of my favorite things. Um, is to point that out in our opportune times that they were all once inside my stomach. That's they don't they don't enjoy that. Anyway, as much as I know that and that that was true, the Bible says that God gives children to us to steward and that they are ours for a time, but truly they are his the whole time. And that the control that we feel like we have over them and exert over them is a temporary measure. They are arrows in the quiver that we are supposed to release to attain their mark for the high calling of Christ Jesus. If you want to talk about wealth distribution, how about talking about the only wealth that matters, which is what we're storing up in heaven?